All right, let's go Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, they will be, they will, we got the text up on the screen, all that kind of stuff. We also have some in the little racks underneath the seats, the little physical Bibles. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, I would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it, uses it to reveal himself to his people. Like, we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him, and we believe that God uses his word to do that in you. And so like we want to put Bibles in people's hands and like come up with creative ways to get them to be reading them and all those kind of things. And so uh, if you don't have one, take that one. All right. So we have made it now to the fifth week of our effort to kind of slowly walk through the book of Titus together. Uh, if you're new here, uh, what, what is the book of Titus? Well, Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a kind of a disciple of his, protege of his, now contemporary of his, named Titus, a pastor figure. Um, and so uh, Paul and Titus traveled around together all throughout the New Testament. Uh, we see Titus's name popping up in all kinds of places, uh, but we think that he and Paul got together shortly after the end of the book of Acts, somewhere around 63-ish AD, and they planted a church together, began a brand new church on the island of Crete. All right? uh, Paul eventually heads off, though, to go work on some other projects, and he leaves Titus behind to kind of tidy up the last little bit of work that needs to be done. All right? He leaves him behind to, to kind of handle some things in his absence and get the last few remaining little things on the to-do list done so that they can call the church sufficiently planted, sufficiently begun. Uh, Now we're not sure, not sure exactly how long the gap is between Paul walking away and leaving Titus there and the writing of this letter. We're not exactly sure about that. We think maybe it's in a couple of months up to a year, but whatever that gap is, all we know is that in that time period, some problems have begun to emerge in the Cretan church. Namely, some false teachers had risen up, some false leaders had risen up, and they were just kind of making a mess of things. They were preaching a works-based understanding of the gospel, which is not the gospel, but even on top of that, they were also giant hypocrites about it, because even as they added heavy burdens onto everybody else, they didn't live up to those things themselves. And so you got a giant mess on top of a giant mess. And so Titus, Titus is a letter written to respond to that issue. That's what Titus is. The, the church at Crete has a problem, and Paul writes back to somebody he calls a son in the faith. He wants dear good for Titus. He wants to see uh, all kinds of good things for Titus, not only because he loves Titus, but also because he wants to see the Cretan church be successful and flourishing and all those kinds of things. And so Paul writes back to Titus to help him fix the problems that are in Cretan. And if you remember, what's the answer that Paul gives them? How is Titus supposed to fix their problems? He's to raise up elders, Paul tells them. Men of lofty character who teach and shepherd and protect the flock of God. At the end of the day, you fix your problems, you fix the issues in Crete by bringing health to the leadership of the church. That's Paul's prescription. And just on the surface, doesn't that sound just like a little bit of, of malarkey? <laughs> like, like don't we, can't we all think of some like other ways to make a church healthy? I mean, I've been to some conferences, and I've read some books, I've even... I've even listened to a podcast or two. I got some ideas. 
right? About how to make a church healthy and successful and thriving. I got some ideas about how to cast vision and, and kind of help a church kind of lean into all that God had created them to be. Like, I got some ideas. I bet you got some ideas too, right? Back there, got to be about 100 options out there for packaged programs that if we just pay a little fee and then we follow the directions, finally get somewhere around here, right? But Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't go there at all. He never mentions any of that stuff. Either A, because those things didn't exist yet, and well, Paul just had to sadly make do with a lesser vibrance of church. Or B, maybe those things aren't as historically necessary as their marketing departments would have us believe. Right? And the real answer is astonishingly simple. Healthy churches and healthy church leadership trickles down to affect every other part of the church. It's just how it works. And so we spent the last few weeks of this series kind of digging into what the Apostle Paul says is the fix for the problem, the fix to Titus' problem. You raise up spiritually mature men who are above reproach. And, and we talked about what those guys are, are to look like by God's design, what they're supposed to be doing, all the, what they're supposed to bring to the table, all that kind of stuff. We also spent a time, some time a couple of weeks ago uh, kind of contrasting that lofty character with what we see as the charlatans that are currently hanging out in Crete. They're, they're worlds apart. Uh, but, and so Paul gives inst- like serious instruction as to what to do with them. Do you remember? He tells Titus to silence them, to bridle them. Not because Paul's mean and he just wants to consolidate power. No, it's because those false teachers really are harming people. They really are harming people. You can't be patient and give a long leash to false teachers because at the end of the day, what they end up doing with it is hanging everybody else. Demands a sharp rebuke. So we spent four weeks digging into chapter one. If you remember, I got up here on this stage behind this little table on the very first week of this series, and I told you it would take us five weeks to get through this letter. So that means, according to my math, we've got to get through both chapter two and chapter three today. You ready? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I was wrong. It happens every once in a while. All right? I know, right? I know. It shocked me too. All right. No, I, I was wrong. It's, it's going to take us way more than five weeks to get through this. I, when I saw it from the beginning, I was like, yeah, 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 we can do that in five weeks. It'll be great. And while Titus is a short letter, it is also an incredibly dense letter. And so, uh, yeah, now we're here. Uh, and so I'm guessing more like eight weeks now. Are you, are you enjoying the ride at least? <laughs> All right. Um, so where do we go from here though? Like we, we've spent all this time looking at chapter one and the qualifications for elders and what they should look like and what they shouldn't look like. Where do we go from here? Well, now it's time to start looking at the trickle down of health. All right, that's where Paul's gonna go next. And so starting with elders, where do we look now? And so that's what we see in verse one. Chapter two, verse one. What do these elders do? But as for you, speaking to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound what? Sound doctrine. So Paul sets up a, a, an intentional contrast here, right? 
The false teachers in Crete proved themselves, if you remember the end of chapter 1, the false teachers in Crete proved themselves to be false because of their ungodliness. And so, therefore, Titus's job, and the job of every other elder, we could say, is to teach the kind of truth that does lead them and everyone else into godliness, that does lead them and everyone else to affirm their faith with their lives. Teach by both word and example that which does naturally produce godliness. And so the obvious next question is, what kind of doctrine naturally produces godliness? I mean, is it a particular statement of faith? Is is it the Baptist one or the Methodist one? Is it Calvinism? Can it be unlocked through a, a rigorous but still highly accessible systematic theology curriculum? Is that what's going on here? What kind of doctrine naturally leads to godliness? Well, Paul's already told us, actually. All the way back at the beginning of the letter, week one. I know it's been a month and a half for us, but if somebody were reading this letter straight through, this is something they would have covered less than two minutes ago. All right? Chapter one, verse one. A right knowledge of what? The truth. A right knowledge of the truth. In other words, a right understanding of the gospel. Paul tells Titus to devote himself to teaching that which helps everyone else grow and come closer to maturity in faith. That's what he tells them to do. To teach them to kind of rightly understand their need for salvation. To teach them just exactly what Jesus has done uh, about their need through his um, perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross. To teach them what he secured for them through his resurrection from the dead. And to teach them what is required of them as a response out of repentance and faith. That's what Paul tells Titus to teach. The Greek word that's rendered as sound there, we use that root word to create the English word hygiene. So the sense here is that this is the kind of doctrine that leads to health. To continued growth and vibrance. You do the hygiene thing to be exactly where you need to be and have the kind of health that ought to be there. And that's exactly what Paul tells Titus to teach here. Man, I I adore, I adore theology. I can sit in a coffee shop for hours until they run me out of there. We can talk about the nuances and the finer points of this doctrinal issue and that doctrinal issue, but there's exactly one doctrinal truth that actually breathes life and vibrance into the soul of every follower of Jesus. The gospel. There's one truth that needs to be repeated and celebrated and championed every single week in the lives of every follower of Jesus, the regular rhythms of God's people. It's the gospel. Not just for the non-believer, but for the believer. It is our bread that we live on. We need to be reminded of the gospel all the time. And because by it, we grow in maturity. And by it, we find our rest in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We said a couple weeks ago that elders are the type of men who, regardless of charisma, regardless of skill set, regardless of, of background, are the ones who stand up and own the responsibility of making sure everyone else in the room is growing in their understanding of the gospel, growing in their understanding of faith. Moving on to chapter two now, Paul says that it's time for the elders to stand up and do their work. That's what he's saying. This is what we are to be about. But what about everybody else? Is there only one guy in the room doing some work? No, look at verse 2. Older men 
are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Okay, so Paul puts, he shifts here from discussing kind of recognized leaders within the local church to other mature Christian men. And, and, and by mature, here he's specifically talking about the gray hairs in the room. All right, he just is. The old guys, or the gray hairs and then the maybe not so much hairs. <laughs> now Paul lays expectations upon them. That's what he does. He says that their lives and character, the old guys, not the leaders, just the old guys, their lives and character should look a certain way. Is that allowed? Like, are we allowed to put expectations on the regular guys in the room? I mean, putting expectations upon leaders is one thing, but expectations upon everybody else, is that, are we allowed to get away with that? Isn't that why we have leaders in the first place so all the normal folk don't have to do that? <laughs> Paul doesn't think it's asking too much. He, he lays out a design for healthy churches. It starts at the top with men of lofty character making disciples, teaching everyone else by both word and action how to be followers of Jesus, how to observe the things he had commanded them, right? But it doesn't stop with that top-level teaching. It doesn't end there at all. Paul moves on from there to older men who do the exact same thing. Disciples are constantly making other disciples, period. And so health at the top begins to trickle down and produce health at the next level. But it doesn't stop there either. Look at verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Paul can't possibly, can't possibly be talking about gray-haired ladies here because I don't think I've ever met one. They don't exist. But if hypothetically, just purely hypothetically, if you ever decide to consider yourself into that category of people, just for kicks and giggles, not because you have it, Paul calls you to present yourself in a certain way too. Right? He's got expectations upon your life. Why though? Why? Well, because you have a disciple-making mandate just like everybody else. That trickle-down continues. Spiritual maturity and spiritual health are passed down along the lines. So who are these totally not gray-haired ladies supposed to teach? Well, it's clarified for us in verse 4. What does it say? And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Hey, you remember how I said in week one that there were some things in this letter that people sometimes get their feathers ruffled over? Well, two of those things show up in these two verses. What a time to be alive. There are two things in verses 4 and 5 that people often trip up over. Um, the first one is that Paul seems to limit women teaching here to only teaching other women. So is that true? I think it is. I think it is. And even though that's often maligned in our culture as some kind of chauvinistic posture by Paul and by those who would interpret him that way, there's actually a number of exegetical reasons for believing that that's exactly what he's talking about here. Uh, for starters, Paul qualifies and then he expands upon what he means by teaching. 
First, he calls it in the beginning of verse 4, he calls it training. And so the Greek word there carries the idea of encouraging someone with advice. And so we're not talking about a big sermon or a public lecture. He's, he's aiming at the natural discipleship relationship, the one-on-one stuff. Can women have a teaching platform to other women? Sure, I guess. Okay. But to worry about the, the parameters of that and the details of that in this text is trying to make the text say something that the text doesn't have it in view. You're trying to make the text speak to something that the text isn't actually arguing for. Secondly, Paul expands on what those supposed training includes. And if you look at the list, it's all about shaping that young woman's family relationships. This goes back to the overarching purpose of the letter. Paul Paul seems to be less concerned with official structures in this moment. And it's not that those structures don't matter. It's not that he doesn't care about that. He most certainly does. But he isn't trying to describe an ironclad org chart here. He's calling the spiritually mature to own the areas of responsibility that God has laid in front of them. That God has called them to. So you've got elders who own that responsibility over the whole church, and you've got older men who own that responsibility for younger men, and you've got older women who own that responsibility for younger women. And guess what? When each of those parts are working like God has designed them and called them to work, everybody in the church gets multiple layers of care and concern. Everybody in the church gets multiple layers of people who say, I will be responsible for making sure you're growing. See, one of the things... One of the things that drives me crazy, absolutely bonkers, whenever people want to start arguing over gender roles within the church and whether or not women are allowed to do X, Y, and Z, the thing that, in my opinion, always seems to get ignored is the simple, beautiful design of God of everybody getting cared for and discipled on multiple levels. That's missed over and over again. The argument always seems to kind of revolve around uh, either equality of gifting and, and aptitude, or if Paul was somehow kind of restrained by the culture that he was in, he couldn't say all that he wanted to say. That's usually how the, the argument plays out. But Paul's aim is neither of those things. He's not, he's not trying to go for either of those things. We, in fact, we spent three weeks just kind of thoroughly dismantling the idea that gifting and aptitude were on the top of the list of what to look for in leaders. So there's not a gifting thing. It's a calling thing. Also, like whenever Paul is given the chance, he, he never seems to mind being antagonistic to a culture. I don't think he's ever had a seatbelt that he couldn't take off. And so what ultimately gets lost in all the back and forth is the focus on healthy congregations that this letter is actually written to chase after. What, this, what Paul is aiming Titus at. What gets lost is younger men and younger women who desperately need mature disciples discipling them. Oftentimes, I don't know if you've found this experience to be true in church life, but it's definitely been true for me. Oftentimes, some of the biggest arguments and controversies in the church are issues that we have made far more complicated than God did. It's just the world I live in. And if we would stop kind of overthinking it and humbly instead line ourselves up with his good design, a lot of things that we think are thorny issues wouldn't actually be thorny issues. They'd actually just work themselves out. But I told you there were two controversial things in these two verses. And because I'm a glutton for punishment, we get to look at the second one. All right. So Paul lists something in the training of, that older women are to help younger women understand. Working at home. 
All right, it's a fun day. All right, there are a lot of people, a lot of people who kind of see that as Paul's explicit command that women are not allowed to have a job outside the home, period. So what do we do with it? Well, just like with the previous issue, we need to look at what the text actually says. Let's look at, look at it within the context of what Paul is doing in the larger letter. For starters, there is a command in verses 4 and 5, but where is it? It's given to older women to train younger women. That's the command in the two verses. Um, the list following that is not a command. It's an elaboration on the command given to the older women. Oh, older ladies, this is how you fulfill the mandate that I'm placing upon you. Train them in these things. And so at the very least, at the very least, it's a little too aggressive to try to point to what Paul is saying here and use that as a blanket ruling for all women, no matter the circumstance. You're trying to make the text do what the text is not trying to do. And so just like before, the people who argue that are trying to say something that the text doesn't actually say. Not only that, But if that were what Paul was saying, then he'd be creating a couple of massive problems for himself. Uh, One, because he doesn't account at all for circumstances where that's not a possibility. Uh, For those in different life stages, marital status, single, never been married, no kids, uh, kids heading off to school, empty nesters, deserted by their husbands. The list can go on and on and on and on where that scenario, that command wouldn't be possible for the lady that's listening to it. Paul's creating a bit of a hornet's nest there. But secondly, if, if this really is what Paul is saying, and I think this is the most important piece, if Paul is demanding that women not work outside the home, then he's undermining an incredibly beloved passage of Scripture. Psalm 30, or Proverbs 31. The let's all celebrate how great moms and daughters and wives are text. It gets whipped out every Mother's Day. <laughs> The text that, you know, that typically gets held up as a lofty standard for Christian women, that text, that text describes over and over again how mom is working to bring in extra income for the family. Proverbs 31, 16, she considers a field and buys it for the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. Verse uh, chapter 31, 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Uh, chapter 31, 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. The OG biblical example of a godly wife and mother shows her to be somebody that's always putting in some work. Always. She never slows down. Inside the house, outside the house, she's never stopping. So what in the world is Paul talking about then when he tells older women to train younger women in several things, including working in the home? Well, remember the context. What's the context? Paul has the discipleship relationship in mind here, the one-on-one stuff. He's setting up the structures for godly women to bring other women along and to train them in godliness. That's what he's aiming them at, to teach them how to model with their lives what they proclaim with their mouths. And while allowances are certainly in view based on life stage and marital status and a whole host of other things, what is not up for debate if you, as long as you call yourself someone who loves the scriptures and is obedient to them, what is not up for debate is that God puts a certain calling on a woman's life to serve in the home. And that home is always healthier when she is able to do so. Always. 
that emblematic Proverbs 31 woman, those are side hustles for her. They're not her primary concern. She, whether she's spending a couple of hours on it or a lot of time on it, those are not her primary concern. And so she cares for the house and she makes sure everybody's got scarlet on just in case it snows. Not because she can't handle herself in the workforce or wouldn't have anything to contribute. In fact, the opposite is true. It's because she's got a ton of things to contribute and she channels all of her attention and energy into those whom she cares for the most. Those whom she loves. She gets to play an incredible, and I would argue an irreplaceable role in providing a platform for everyone else in the home to succeed. So she works diligently, we're told. And the common refrain all throughout Proverbs 31 is that her family is incredibly blessed and wouldn't be where they are today without her. So she should be celebrated and applauded and put up on pedestal and guarded, and all the good things that need to happen. Paul's not contradicting Proverbs 31. He is certainly in step with it. And just like before, while everybody is arguing over whether or not Paul allows outside jobs for women, what gets missed is the simple beauty of God's design of everybody getting cared for and discipled on multiple levels. Is that, is that something that can be pursued in every single circumstance? No. Is it, is it the right move for every single woman in the church, no matter what stage of life they happen to find themselves in? No. But is it an incredibly beautiful gift of God that is, he has given for our good and for his glory? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Is it something that a lot more women should probably consider to be a viable option instead of whatever else they might be chasing after right now? Yeah, I sincerely think it is. And to argue against that, you've got to argue against a lot of Bible. Not because the outside job is evil, but because as a culture, like, I don't, I don't know anybody who can argue with this. As a culture, we have undersold, and I think grossly misrepresented, the beauty and otherworldly value of what's going on inside a home. I think we've sold that short so that that doesn't count anymore. God would say no. I've given it to you for your good. And once you cross that bridge, once you cross that bridge, what we're talking about here, should she or shouldn't she, it's a wisdom issue. It's a take all the circumstances and all the things that you have available as your options and make the wisest decision possible according to the the things that God has laid in front of you. It's a wisdom issue. But until you cross that bridge, it's never going to feel like anything other than an attack on value. You got to cross the bridge. And that's why the conversation and debate around this stuff always seems to be sharper and less grace-filled than it need to be, should be. It's because a biblical worldview of calling and vocation and of the home directly affects how you see this issue. And until you have that, you're not going to see it right. It'll never make sense. But there's one last piece in verse 5 that we haven't talked about yet, and it's huge. It directly affects how you read the rest of the verse. Paul gives all of this a purpose statement. Do you see it? That the word of God may not be what? Reviled. So Paul points us 
past personal reasons, points us past the things that we want, even though those things that, those benefits that come with doing what God says is good are true, even though God does deliver on his promises, Paul points us past those personal benefits of being trained in godliness and on to a larger evangelistic one. He points us to an evangelistic benefit. In addition to the personal benefits of walking in a mat- as a mature disciple, another benefit is that those around us see our lives and are thereby they understand God's word to be true. It's the inconsistency of our lives. When, when our life does not match up the proclamation of our mouth that those on the outside looking in go, yeah, I don't think I can trust that. But as we mature, the testimony of our lives becomes more and more and more and more consistent. And people on the outside go, hey, maybe there's something to that. But Paul keeps going in verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So just like with the women, older men are to train up the younger men. Is it limited to them? I think it probably is. And just with, like with the women, Paul fleshes out what that teaching training includes. And in this case, he sets his sights squarely on integrity issues. Integrity issues, something that the Cretans were famously known for lacking, right? Talked about that. But again, Paul gives a reason. There's a, there's, a, uh, there's a reasoning behind what he's aiming them at. So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So looking past the obvious personal reasons for godliness, and make no mistake, they are clearly there, but Paul's larger concern here is the clarity of the gospel message. He's pointing them past the personal benefit to an evangelistic benefit, the clarity of the gospel message. While the false teachers and false leaders in Crete were undermining the gospel with their ungodliness, Paul calls all of the men in the Cretan church, leaders, old guys, young guys, all the way down the line, he calls them to prop up the gospel, we could say, by their life. By living consistently with it. So does that cover everybody in the church then? Nope. At least not in a first century Cretan context. We can take another step down. Look at verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, in it, uh, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The Greek word there for bondservant is the word doulos. It means slave. It's the same word that Paul calls Titus in himself uh, at the beginning of the letter. But while Paul claims that title uh, kind of as a, as a teaching element, he's talking about actual slaves here. Actual slaves here. The ESV renders, sometimes renders the word as bondservant in order to kind of draw a line of distinction between how they used it in the first century Greek world and how we would typically use that word today, slave. Uh, and so if you're new to the Bible, it's not, Paul's not talking about chattel slavery here, the, the, the kind of slavery that we naturally think of in a Western context. It's not that those that type of slavery didn't exist. It certainly did, and there were, it was not good at all. But what it is is something that was dwarfed by a much larger other system of slavery uh, that's more closely aligned with bond servantry, right? 
People would often sell themselves into slavery for a specific period of time. They would have a contract about it to either pay off a debt or in some cases to learn a trade, kind of like an apprenticeship, all right? And so both of those systems existed and the the bond servantry system was just way bigger. And so that's typically what Paul's talking about in that case. And there are certainly historical accounts of abuse even within that system. But there are also lots and lots of historical accounts that people saw that as a viable way to kind of get ahead in the world. If they didn't inherit wealth and status, they could work their way into wealth and status by kind of selling themselves off. And so what we're seeing here is something that's way more nuanced and complicated than people sometimes try to make it out to be. But Paul here, he speaks not to whether or not the system was good or bad. He he doesn't say that it should be done away with or everybody should run away. What he speaks to, rather, is what Christ-like posture looks like inside of that system. So how do bond servants, how do slaves live out godliness? He tells them to submit, to work diligently. They are to seek the welfare of their master. Paul gives the same kind of instructions in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 and 1 Timothy 6. In all four of those places, Paul kind of redirects the conversation away from personal issues to using whatever temporary circumstances God has you in right now towards leveraging that position for the eternal purposes, for the cause of the gospel. And so while it may be incorrect, I would say definitely is incorrect to, to try to tie first, our first century understanding of slavery to what our, would be our modern understanding of an employee. Like those are not at all the, the same thing. However... However, the posture of submitting to the authorities that God has currently placed over you and the posture of working diligently for the welfare of your boss, the posture of being well-pleasing and not pilfering as an employee, yeah, those do line up. Those line up pretty well. So not only does the trickle-down of health and godliness flow from leaders to um, the mature to everyone else, but it also flows out from there into all of the places that church members end up when they leave the gathering. The health goes out from the church family and into the world. And so Paul, he gives a third purpose statement at the end of verse 10. Did you see it? So that in everything, they may what? Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I got, I got to give you a little bit of a geek out moment for me. I am a big fan of the word adorn. Like a massive fan of the word adorn. Uh, the Greek there is the word uh, cosmeo. Cosmeo, it's where we get our English word cosmetic from. Um, so the idea, the idea here is, is of decorating emphasizing the beauty of the gospel. It's not a cover-up. You're not trying to make something that's not there. That's how you misuse cosmetics. No, it's an adorning of what is already there, right? And Paul says that this life of godliness, this submitting and diligence on the part of bondservants, it serves a massive eternal purpose that people would see the gospel for all that it naturally is, that they would celebrate its beauty, and that they would ultimately be wooed to faith in Christ. There's a massive prize at the finish line of the incredibly simple things that God has called us to as his people. 
Say that again because it matters. There is a massive prize at the finish line of all the incredibly simple things that God has called us to as his people. Unfortunately, we don't always see it for what it is. We oftentimes overthink our calling and believe that we've got to come up with our own adornments for the gospel. Our own adornments for the church. Our own adornments for God's word. But listen, God is bigger and smarter than all of us. Period. Not just me, not just you, collectively all of us, period. We don't have to come up with better plans than his. Healthy churches really are more simple than we often assume they have to be. And so what begins with healthy leaders in the elders, spiritually mature men of lofty character who own the responsibility of teaching, what begins with the elders flows down from them into everybody else in all the little corners, older women with younger women, older men with younger men, and even bond servants are getting in on the godliness trickle-down effect. And when that occurs, when that occurs, everybody is growing in their faith. And everybody is getting the attention and the care that they need. And most importantly of all, God and his gospel are seen and they are celebrated and they are adored. And I hope I don't have to sell you on the idea that that's, that's better than anything else we might call a success metric around here. That's the bigger win. In an eternal game, that's the finish line that will actually pay off for us in the end. But, but what do we do with all this stuff today, though, right? Like, we got big long-term goals, but how can we respond to God's word this morning? What do we do with it? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, this week, I think he's showing us that he is good and he has, he has incredibly good plans for us. But not just for us, also for his church. He's got incredibly good plans for us. His good plans start here, but they also flow out from here into every area of our lives. And we usually, and just been my own experience in the world, we usually end up making a mess of that the moment we start thinking, hey, I think I might have a better idea. Is that true for you as it is for me? It's definitely true for me. And so this week, man, our response probably probably needs to take the shape of repentance and returning back to what he's actually called us to. It's that simple. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing again. That's the time we set aside to give space for a response. Use it. But listen, maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Man, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. I don't know your story. I'd love to get to know it though. There's a way that you can respond to. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God relationally because of our sin and that we are owed the just and righteous punishment for sin, death. The Bible calls it a couple of other things. It never calls it something good, death. But even while we were sinners, enemies of God, we are told, the Bible also teaches that God has done something about it. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us in a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross, a Roman cross, as a full and final payment to, uh, for our sin, a, a sacrifice in our place. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteous, righteousness. And now as the one who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to King Jesus. Are his commands sometimes, sometimes contrary to the culture we live in? Yeah. 
Yeah, they are. Will there there be times when he wants for us to look, what he wants for us kind of looks basically the exact opposite of what we might want for ourselves? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the case. Uh, But is he smarter than us and want more good for us than we might even want for ourselves? Yeah, that's also the case. And the call for you this morning is to trust his goodness and his good plan for you in both the salvation he provides and in the sanctifying work that he has promised to continue doing in your heart. And you can do that today. Maybe, maybe you're ready to do that this, this morning. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether, whether that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's, it's time to say yes, be obedient to Jesus in baptism, or maybe he's calling you to take the gospel to some faraway place and you need to publicly say yes to that this morning. I'd love to help you walk through what that, looks, what that response looks like. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Titus, even when it's hard to hear. Even when it may poke at us in places we don't like. God, would you grant us humility before your word, before your call. Thank you for the dozens and dozens of people you've brought to our church over the years. Old men, old ladies who have faithfully discipled, trained others in the way we should walk. Help us continue in that pathway. And and we're not naive. We can ruin it in a heartbeat. We need your wisdom, and we need your continued presence. So would you do what only you can do and continue to grant health here that trickles down to every corner of who we are. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call men and women into your kingdom? And yeah, sometimes lordship looks complicated and hard and something I'm not all that interested in. But you are good. You are mighty to save. And even when we don't understand it yet, you are better than we understand. So save people today for, your good, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.